Welcome to the Context Matters podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I like to gather around the table with a wide variety of people who have very different life experiences from mine, and we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcome around this table. You can reach out to me through my Narrative of Place website. Today is part two of the conversation I had with Dr. Jennifer Holberg about her new book called Nourishing Narratives. Dr. Holberg is a professor and the chair of the English department at Calvin University and the co-director of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Last week, we talked a lot about how context can shape our views of God and Christianity. We also discussed what it means for humans to be story-shaped people. And in talking about history and story, I wanted to bring up an example Dr. Holberg uses in her book. She described the film project by Peter Jackson called They Shall Not Grow Old. I had never heard of this until I read about it in her book. It's a remarkable project in which Jackson took old World War I film footage, added color, and kind of messed with the film speed and makes it all come alive in a new way. After describing the effect this film has on modern viewers, Dr. Holberg writes in her book, I wonder what color and sound we need to enrich our reading of Scripture, especially when it begins to feel gray and washed out and rather silent in what it says to us. And that right there is one of the main reasons I love being in the land of the Bible. It takes a two-dimensional biblical text and bursts it into three dimensions, and you can feel the steepness of the mountain ascent, and you can smell the spices. It made me curious how Dr. Holberg would answer her own question. How do you take the ghosts and the shadows of the past and make them come alive? I really do recommend that film. It's amazing, just even on a technical level, how he takes all this different footage from World War I and changes the speed of it. So, you know, we're often used to seeing old films, but sometimes they're herky-jerky and sort of, and they don't seem like real people. And I think that's really what I'm trying to get at there is once he slowed the film down to like what our normal rate of film is, and he had lip readers that like figured out what they were saying, and then he literally went to different parts of England. So if he knew the man was from like Lancashire, he found someone with a Lancashire accent to like say what the man was. I think when we watch old movies, it often feels very much like those weren't real people yeah. or that's not a real thing. And all of a sudden those guys started looking like my students, right? They're 19 year old men. Like I see every single day in my classroom and I care about my 19-year-old men in my classroom, right? And it World War One, rather than seeming like back in the day, there was just, you know, 100 years. And I think sometimes we have that approach to scripture. It's like, oh, the patriarch, Abraham. But if you actually read scripture, they were real people. And I think an interpretive problem is when it's all like the heroes of the Bible, except they're not any more heroic than I am. Yeah. Right. It's like he gets this crazy idea in his head that's like, oh, hey, I don't want to be in trouble. So let's say you're my sister because technically you're my sister. But right. But you can understand how someone does that if you see them as a real living, breathing person living through their faith, 
rather than as an exemplar of the faith, right? And so I think that we have to do with scripture is always think about these were real people with whom God interacted, just as God is interacting with us. So just as you think about this person in your church that annoys you, or the saint of God who you're like, wow, that woman, I'd love to be more like her. Rather than thinking about them as actually people you would have known, or I was talking to some in my Bible study the other day, we were talking about how hard it would have been married to one of these guys, or like be in a meeting with some of them. Seriously, if you don't think about the Bible as real, as embodied, I mean, the whole idea of the incarnation is actually such an important thing that God could have done all kinds of stuff by the Spirit, by sort of just decreeing it. I mean, it's much more efficient. Right. Augustine talks about in on Christian teaching about why God decided to use people to teach other people when it would be much easier to just like deposit the knowledge in our head or have an angel like, you know, an angel could tutor me. But why? Why do we have to be embodied with each other? Why does Jesus become embodied to be God decides to become embodied? And that is important. And we don't believe in a kind of this kind of very abstract platonic thing. One of the phrases I use in the book is plenitude and particularity, right? It's about this idea that God is amazing and vast, but is amazing and vast in Gerard Milley Hopkins talks about we should praise God for not just the sparrow, but for the sparrow's wing and, you know, for every tool that we use in our work. So it's not just these vague things. It's like on this very microscopic level and this very embodied way, God is at work in all these ways. And the more you pay attention to the little things, the greater the plenitude. And so I think it's why it's important that we look at where people are from, right? Why does it matter that you're a Japanese Christian or you're a Kenyan Christian or you're a West Michigan Christian? Like each of those things give me more image of God, yeah, not less. Right. And we aren't trying to like get down to this like kind of generic Christian. No, the mosaic requires the beauty of each of those Christians to give us the fullest possible picture of God. And so I think if we don't understand that Jesus literally had to walk from here to here, and what did that mean? And I remember hearing a sermon one time on the gates of hell shall not stand against it. Oh, yes. But that he's literally standing by a part of the Holy Land where they were called the gates of hell. So he's like, hey, there's this place that some people around here think like is the gate literally to the underworld. There it is. And I was like, huh, I didn't realize there was a literal gate of hell. Of course, as a literature person, I'm like, everything's a metaphor. (laughs) But to understand that, I was like, that's so cool. Yeah. She is literally speaking my language. The place she's referring to is in the huge Roman city called Caesarea Philippi. And I love taking groups there to look at the cave that was considered by the Romans to be an entrance to Hades. But it's not just being in the physical location. What I love is the follow-up conversation. Why then would Jesus have that particular conversation there, as opposed to in one of the faithful Jewish villages where he spent so much of his time? Geography matters. Place matters. I love this stuff. And I just think the excitement of a life of faith And the reason we go to church is partly for fellowship, certainly, but it is partly to get to learn about all this stuff, Yeah, right? And for people to tell us from all their different 
parts of Mako Fujimura has this great new book on, you know, making. And in it, he talks about plumbing and he talks, and there's all kinds of stuff I just don't know about, but I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. Or I have a really close friend who's an engineer. She's teaching a class on fluctuations in like, they're going to do an entire semester just on vibrations. I'm like, can you have a whole class on that? That's so interesting, right? And I think that Christians sometimes in moving to wanting to have this like set answer, Mm -hmm. really get themselves away from intellectual curiosity and in understanding that the Bible is just so full, every single chapter of more stuff we could know about the geography and helping to imagine this as God is doing real work in real places. This isn't a fairy story that's sort of happening in wherever, And those, of course, teach us important things, too. But to understand that God is at work in actual lives, because that tells you what God can do in your actual life. Yeah. So I just think the more we know and the more we can imagine, the more we can think about poor Martha and her kitchen. Yeah. Right. Like, I actually am giving credence to the fact that these were real people. Yeah. These are people that have names. And so every time we have those long chapters of names, it's partly because God is interested at that level in that particular name that we know nothing else about. But that name was important enough to remember because God was at work in that life and through every generation. Right. And so every time we read scripture, it should make us feel more connected, more real, not more abstract, you know. You, um, I'm being an English professor and your love of metaphor, as you said, uh, you (laughs) use a lot of metaphors in your book. And so it's delightful. I mean, things like gardening and nourishing, I mean, gardens in particular are rich metaphors for all kinds of ways of which, like how we live our life. But the biblical writers loved metaphor as well. And so they always were using the rock, the stream, the wilderness, like these very tangible physical things to talk about the complicated nature of theology. And so it was delightful for me to be reading your book where you're using these metaphors, you talk about what the actual metaphor is, and then you bring in literature, sometimes poetry and then biblical stories and meld it all together. It was this delightful kind of blending of all these things that I love. But I'd love to hear if in writing the book, is there a metaphor now that the book is out in public? Is there a metaphor that you wrote about in the book, but it continues to hang on to you now because it just struck you in such a poignant way? Yeah. Yeah. The book was really an opportunity for me to sort of put out all the poems that I like. It's sort of my greatest hits, if you will, in terms of things that have resonated with me over the years, being a middle-aged person. You start to see the sort of disappointments of people's lives, you know, the good and the bad. But I also think there are people who begin to understand like, oh, I'm going to retire in 10 years, or what was it all for? Or is this all there is? Or, you know, that sort of thing. So it's interesting to work with college students who are on the cusp of, oh, I get to do all the things. And then to see people a little further along that have been in an institution a long time, and just to really think about people's disappointments or whatever. So when you were talking about hope earlier, how do we maintain hope over a lifetime? How do we continue to imagine God has work for us in every season. And so I think one of the things that's been important for me is T.S. Eliot talks about that the way we know we'll be successful. This is in 
his long work, The Four Quartets, he talks about that we nourish the life of significant soil, that that's the way you know that you'll have had a, a life. And I, I love that. I mean, it's both a gardening metaphor, but we all know people when we've been in communities for a long time that are not making the soil better, that are, you know, making it more toxic or making it so other things can't grow and maybe even themselves can't grow. Right. And the soil is being so messed with. But I also like the idea that that is actually what success is, that we just have to be good dirt and that as long as I'm good dirt, it's fine. And as I'm thinking about my life and my choices and where I'm going to invest and where I'm not, is this making the garden better? Am I toxifying the soil or am I actually nourishing the soil? And so part of the nourishing narratives really kind of comes out of that a little bit, that this idea that I think this idea of it's not really my own achievement, it's have I become the kind of dirt that even after my death will be for the community something that continues to nourish it, that as a teacher, that I was somebody who, even if you only had me for a semester, which is most students, right, that that little bit reminded you of your belovedness and strengthened your own soil a little bit better, that I nourished the life of significant soil. And I think that that then tells you, and I love how it ties then into our liturgies of, you know, from dust you and dust you will become, but what kind of dust are you going to be? Yeah. Right. If that is in fact true, which I believe it is, then what kind of dust am I going to be? And is the garden better because I was in the garden? And was I able to help your plant flourish a little bit too? So it doesn't really matter if you won the thing or you did whatever. I mentioned earlier that I talk about Matthias. I think that story is so fascinating that here's the guy who gets picked to be the 13th apostle. You'd think that was like a big dude, right? How is he not a big dude? And yet after he's selected, you never hear from him ever again. Like not once. There's not a single shout out to him in any New Testament letter. They're not even sure when you read the like different like accounts of them. There's about four or five different places he may have gone, different ways he died. All I just think that's fascinating because you think he should be a big deal. And he totally isn't. But I love the little tagline for him, which is he was a witness ready to serve. Hmm. And I think as we think about how to imagine what our life is and how we have hope is, I think that's the only thing you have to be. Are you a witness ready to serve? Are you someone who makes the dirt better? And are you yourself good dirt? Are you? And that means like if you're a plant, if anyone who knows, and I'm not a, a great gardener, but I know that after a while, if you have houseplants for a long time, you got to give them fertilizer and you got to give them. So that means you yourself but also, it also means that that's coming from other places, too, and that God continues to help us be that significant soil. But, yep, that's all you got to be. Good dirt. Yeah. <laughs> that is so great. I was really struck with that portion of your book when you talked about that. I, I think I bent the corners of the page or something, <laughs> just in terms of going back. And because it is such a helpful reframing even as you were saying, we tend to look at our accomplishments. It's almost like, well, how many apples did you pick from the tree? As opposed right. to can the tree flourish because the soil is what is the most important. And that was extremely helpful in reframing. Yeah. Well, and I think as we think about narratives of our culture, and I think even in the church, we are not always good at resisting 
cultural narratives of what was successful. So you're successful because 15 people came to your event at church, or you're successful because this many people made a declaration, or you're because you raised this much money. And all of those markers are important. But to be honest, I think if you do the work well, God gives the increase. And that's why God has to put the fruit on the tree, right? The fruit of the spirit are not because I like sit here and go, I need an apple to be produced. It's because God brings the apple, but it's also because I'm faithful in doing the work. And I think if there's anything I can say to students about feeling like they're going to be successful in life, I'm always like, if you were a witness ready to serve, if you did the work at hand, that's it. That's all we're called to do. And anything else, you know, were you a successful doctor? Great. God bless you. I'm sure that God is using that work. But if you're the, whatever work you do, I think, you know, that's why I think the New Testament, you know, work as unto the Lord. And so I think to resist this culture of, you know, people then, and I mean, obviously I'm an academic, so we're constantly being like, okay, how many articles did you publish? And everything is always a measurement of how much you haven't done. And I think the thing that culture tells us all the time, whether that's you're not the right size, you're not being a parent correctly, you're not, everything is always about what you're not and how you're lacking. And the gospel is always about the fullness of life. And so I think every time we can resist narratives, whether that's in our work life, in our parenting and family life, in our whatever, in our personal life, when it's like, you are less, you are less, you are less. And that's our entire culture. And church absorbs it too. We have to say, no, I am more. And this is why in the book, you know, I quote one of my, I talked about him already, Gerard Manley Hopkins, but he has this wonderful poem where he's very upset about how nothing's going to survive and nothing he does and nobody who even makes the strongest mark in history, like they're all forgotten. And he, oh, he gets very upset. And then he finally says in the middle of the poem, enough, right? You can click. And he says, the resurrection. And because of the resurrection, I am already an immortal diamond. Now, I'm also a lot of other junk, right? And he lists it off. But I'm already right today, beloved, precious. I'm an immortal diamond. And the move through life and into eternity is to become only an immortal diamond. But I'm already a mortal diamond now, right? I am not less. I am already precious and beloved. And I think that if that was the only thing we proclaimed, that through Christ you are beloved today and do not buy the thing about how you are insufficient and all of that, I think that would be a powerful testimony for us to embrace as a church. Instead, we're like, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, and I'm not enough. And certainly we're not enough to save ourselves, but we are in so many other ways. And God really loves us in all those other ways too. So. Well, thank you so much. I, again, I'll just say I really, it was delightful, the process of reading your book. And I just appreciate your thoughtfulness and highlighting the hope and the imagination and the beauty in scripture. Exactly as you said, it's something to be reminded of that is just so helpful. So thank you for taking time to be on the podcast. It was delightful speaking with you today. Yeah, thank you. And I really hope all of you all that study scripture, thank you for that work. And thank you for helping us continue to see, because I think 
the whole point of scripture is how big and how capacious it is, is and how much room there is for every single person to add their reading and to add their scholarship to help us all see more because the scripture is just always bigger than we can ask or imagine. And isn't that a gift? So thank you. And thank you for your podcast. Fun to talk to you. Thank you for joining me today as I talked with Dr. Jennifer Holberg about her book, Nourishing Narratives. Next week, we will be speaking to an author about her new book called Blessed Are the Peacemakers, a biblical theology on human violence. You don't want to miss it. These kinds of conversations with scholars around the globe are possible because of people like Linda Overall, Carol and Brian Lloyd, Sandy Cool. They are part of the larger team who financially support the podcast and make it actually sustainable from one season to another. Thank you, team. I can't do any of this without you. And if you ever want to join the team, there's a link to my Patreon page in the episode notes of the show. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Odd Parliament did the edits and the final mix. And Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. It's so good to be with you. And until we meet again next week, be safe and take care of each other and stay curious about the world around you.